Words, they get golly hard when they jumble Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle Merkin fool, like Squirtle and Kate Gould Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about attention to detail, care, and precision. I've been thinking about food, history, culture, family, and location. And I've been contemplating the meaning of life, a life well-lived, with purpose, deep connections, and a strong sense of identity. And I've been thinking about my surprise that reading an Italian cookbook could have led me to such inquiry and so many wonderful answers. My guest today is Marianne Esposito. She is the author of Ciao Italia, My Lifelong Food Adventures in Italy, capping off a dozen previous books and hosting the longest-running cooking show in history, PBS's Ciao Italia. She has worked side-by-side with other world-renowned chefs, received numerous honors and awards, including winning the Premio Artusi Award from Forlampopoli, Italy. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us today, Marianne. Thank you, Ellie. That was such a sweet introduction. Thank you so much. So I want to start with talking about your path to 28 years of continuous broadcasts for a cooking show and and more than a dozen cookbooks and annual trips to Italy. It's so interesting to me that you came from a line of professional chefs. You spent your childhood cooking. I love thinking about you with the cooking 20 (laughs) loaves of bread a day. Um, And and yet you never intended on pursuing a, a career in cooking and maybe actually was kind of pushing the other direction, but ended up here nonetheless. And, and so maybe we can talk about that, that fateful pasta maker that your mother sent you and how that changed right. things. Right. Well, you really did your research because, yes, as a kid, I was tied to these women's apron strings. And by that, I mean my two uh, Southern Italian grandmothers, one Neapolitan, one Sicilian, both in the food business. One had a boarding house where, of course, cooking was going on all day long. And the other who had a butcher shop in Fairport, New York. And I, and that's actually in that butcher shop is where I learned to singe feathers off of chickens, not the most glamorous food job in the world. And my mother uh, raised eight, uh, seven children, and she had eight brothers and sisters. And at the tender age of 54, she decided to become a dietitian. So you see, food has a way of capturing you in ways that maybe you don't want to be captured initially. I felt that it was, as a kid, a lot of work, backbreaking work. You know, why couldn't these women go to the store and just buy prepared foods? Why were they doing all of this laborious work on the hottest of days? And that just drove me away. And I just said to myself, I'm never going to be like them. (laughs) But in my first cookbook, Ciao Italia, I said in the introduction, if someone had looked into a crystal ball and told me that I would be doing a cooking show, I would have choked on two meatballs. Because my intention as a teenager growing up and heading off to college was that I wanted to be a teacher. That was my avocation. I wanted to be a teacher. And that was that. And that's what I did. I went to school to become a secondary high school history teacher. And when you think back of those memories now of baking the bread or making the pasta or or singeing the chicken feathers, are they pleasant memories in hindsight or are they still sort of like, wow, that was really rough and, and a lot of work? Well, they're all of that. I think it's, I have like a minestrone of feelings about those early years, because when I did write my first cookbook, I actually was very emotional about it because I had to draw on those experiences of being young and being in this family and always being uh, with food in some form or another. So I, I thought of it as drudgery, but then I also thought of it as, wow, what a gift these women have given me because I learned so much from them at such a young age, but it was all suppressed. So, you know, subconsciously, I knew how to bake bread. I knew how to make pasta. I knew how to, you know, cut a chicken up um, because I, it was going on all the time, every day. But I really never wanted to do that. But as I grew older and when I made my first trip to Italy back in oh, 1985 or 86, Everything that these women represented and had taught me came full circle. 
And the light bulb went on in my head. You know how that is when, you know, you don't appreciate things when you're younger. But then as you grow older and things become more meaningful to you, when I made that first trip to Italy, everything they had ever told me about Italy, about the culture, the people, the food, the, the pride in workmanship, all of it was right there. And I realized that this was something special. And, and then I ran with it. Well, and it's interesting too, and I hadn't thought of this while, I, while reading the book and preparing for the interview, but I'm thinking of it now. The, the, also the multiple layers as a child of dealing with your place in America and with your relative's mm-hmm. place in America and their mm-hmm. migration to America. And I, I remember you talking about an aunt that, I think it was an aunt or a great aunt that came over with an arranged marriage, um, exactly. in America yeah, with someone she hadn't met. And it was eating the, the oranges and then, you know, it, 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 it was her survival on the boat, but she never wanted to see one when she got back. And I think as a child, you're dealing with your place. And, you know, I, I read a couple of times you, you were interested in iceberg lettuce and, and hamburgers and fries um, and and having to balance those two worlds and, and sort of find, mm-hmm. find your place. Yes, because it, I always say that, you know, when I was living at home, Inside, we were in Italy, in that house, because there was still the dialect being spoken, even though I had no idea most of the time what they were saying. Inside, only Italian foods were made. But outside, I was American. So when I came home, I was an Italian-American. But when I was outside, I was just an American teenager. And as a, as a uh, youngster in middle school... I would go to school with sandwiches made by my grandmother on hard whole wheat bread that had that was stuffed with a fried egg in between. Everybody else was having, you know, a bologna sandwich or peanut butter and jelly. So the 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 focus of that tradition also transferred outside with me to school. And I kind of felt bad about that. I thought I want to eat what those kids are eating. I don't want to eat I a fried want the egg sandwich. Bread. Right. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. I, I've been thinking about the three words used to describe your life in cooking, and I think it was on your your cooking show website, and I saw it a couple other places as well. And their authenticity, history, and tradition. And I thought it's such a great example of you sort of being the perfect expression of yourself in in the perfect um, occupation and. Um, We'll, we'll talk about that throughout the show. On your book dedication, you said, For My Family, Don't Forget. And I'm wondering what it is that you don't want your family to forget. I don't want them to forget the traditions that they've uh, come to know from me that were handed down by their grandparents and their great-grandparents and that I have continued to pass on, that I'm, I'm passing on now to them. So I don't want them to forget that. I want them, I know that, you know, their lives are busy, but I want them to somehow carry on what the traditions have meant to me. I, I don't mean that they have to do a cooking show or write a cookbook, but in their personal lives, I want them to keep alive the traditions that have meant so much um, to me and also to them. I was thinking about the multiple ways that that you've done that with the cooking show and with your cookbooks and with the food itself that you prepared and that they can also prepare. And I was thinking about, you know, the selfie everyone's <laughs> so obsessed with now to create these memories where they aren't even, I was at a museum recently and I'm like, oh my gosh, they aren't even looking at the painting. They are standing with their back to the painting and taking a selfie. And I was thinking about how different it is with what you've created, the memories you've created, because they are multi-sense memories that engage every aspect of our humanity well um i you know i when i wrote this book i put a lot of emotion um memories and the active work that i do into it so that the book turned out to be yes a a capstone of the the 30 years that i've been exploring italian regional food and that was One of the things that I I wanted to make very definite about this cookbook is that these recipes represent the regional foods of of Italy. And if you you notice, if you open the cover to the book, the very first thing you see is a map of Italy, a beautiful map of Italy on the inside cover that shows you the 20 regions. And then as you read the narrative, the stories, I felt that, you know, people could refer back to that when I was talking about the, the saints race in, in Gubbio, for instance. And I said, well, you know, Gubbio is this 
beautiful medieval town in Umbria. Well, maybe a lot of people don't know where Umbria is, but they could certainly just flip back to that map and find where it is. I wanted people to come to Italy vicariously with me, those, you know, who will never get there, or those who watch my show and see clips or videos of episodes where we have been in Italy filming. So I realize that not everyone is going to be able to do this, but they they can get a beautiful glimpse of Italy if they uh, read the stories that are attached to the recipes and they learn something about the history of the recipes. Because my intention was not to just put a recipe in a book, but to tell you why is this recipe important? Why does it have the name that it has? What is it associated with? And so as I wrote it, I felt like this was a compendium of important recipes and visions and inspirations and experiences that I've had all in one book. So it's more of a travel uh, adventure as well as a recipe book. And I think it's so important that with that, it's, it's where does it fit and then that gets people thinking about, you know, where do I fit? Where am I connected? What are the different aspects of my identity um, in regard to, to place and, and history? And it seemed like that was what grabbed you. It's like the pasta maker that your mom sent you was the first nudging in the direction. And you're like, okay, well, I'll cook some, pa- I'll make some pasta. Right. And yeah. then it was going to Italy and mm-hmm. and being excited and engaged with the history um, mm-hmm. and the geography that kind of, that was the the clink that that you were then locked into exactly i you know i i've always felt that um food italian food has defined me i said that in the introduction you know that i couldn't escape this as a as a child of course my last name was saporito and saporito in italian means very tasty so it was a you know a, a prophetic name I guess for someone who became a chef you know who was a teacher who became uh, a chef but uh, yes uh, when my mother gave me that pasta machine it that was like a, a magic carpet almost you know because here it was this gleaming shiny thing on my counter and I knew instantly you know what to do with it this was now you know when i was in my 20s and hadn't you know been cooking for a while because i was teaching traveling and i when i looked at that machine i, I thought well let me give it a try and so when i made the first batch of dough and i didn't have to use a recipe because i had seen them make this so many times i knew what to do because a lot of times people ask me well I don't get it quite right. How do I know when the bread is right? How do I know this? You won't know anything unless you use your hands because your hands are the best tool and they're the best indicator of how you can make something. So I knew that having made pasta at home with them and also watching them, that the dough had to have a certain look to it. It had to have a certain feel to it. You know, they would use descriptive words to explain it. Like, you know, pasta has to feel soft, like a baby's bottom. And when you roll it through the rollers, you have to be able to see your hand behind the sheet of pasta. That's when you know that it's thin enough. So things like that, that, you know, were all kind of tucked away in that little treasury of your mind that all came into play when uh, I got that pasta machine. You talk at one point in the book about um, you're in Italy and you are having a wonderful dessert. And you say, I didn't even bother to ask her why her pastry dough was different from mine, because I knew the answer I would get would be like, well, just a little of this or a little of that. (laughs) There weren't going to be any specifics. Well, that's so true. You know, and when I wrote my first book, I was in the in the pastry chapter, and I thought I've got to call my mother. So I called my mother, and I said, "Mom, I need the recipe for Mrs. Ritchie's cookies." Mrs. Ritchie was a you know we lived in an Italian neighborhood, and so these women would come all the time to see my my mother and my grandmother, and they would sit and talk and dialect about the old country, and invariably they would bring something with them. And I remember Mrs. Ritchie's cookies. So my mother said, I will send you the recipe. (laughs) Okay. So she sends me the recipe on a little recipe card. And it says at the very top, Mrs. Ritchie's cookies makes one bushel. (laughs) 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 And so, you know, well, you just put, you know, five pounds of flour, then you add some butter, get some sugar, add a few eggs. When it looks right, then you can make the cookies. These women didn't, 
work off of recipes. This is what I came to realize as I got older, that most of Italian cooking, Italian regional cooking, whether it was my, my uh, mother or grandmother's, was all intuitive. They didn't have recipes. They worked from memory, from what they had on hand, local ingredients, and they just may do, you know, if they had a couple eggs and some herbs and a little cheese or something, they made a frittata, you know, became a frittata. So um, when you write a cookbook about Italian regional food, you have to remember that, that, that originally there were no set recipes. And these developed over time as you had a lot of immigration into the United States, especially Italians who came from southern Italy and brought a lot of their culture with them. And, you know, that was around 1890, 1900, and, and 1920 when you had those great waves. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so they brought their traditions, yes, but they couldn't often find the same ingredients that they were used to uh, in Italy. And as they became a little bit more prosperous here, well, you know, they could put a piece of meat in the sauce when they were making Sunday sauce, or they could add a bit more cheese to something, or they could use more eggs. So over time, what we know about what were authentic Italian, quote, recipes has changed. So in this country, we have a, uh, a very, I don't want to use the word superficial, but we have a very different um, understanding of what Italian regional food is. I keep saying regional because in my first televised show, I said there is no such thing as Italian food. And, and that's true. There's only Italian regional food because each region, 20 regions, is very distinct in the ingredients that they use. And, you know, in each region is very proud of their particular products. So this, is, this cookbook is a, a way for anyone who wants to make regional recipes come alive. Will they be the exact flavor of what you were, what would have if you were sitting at a table in Italy? No, because you, you do not have those exact products. Yes, you can get some of them, like good imported pastas. You can get olive oils from all over different regions of Italy. You can find capers. You can find pasta, cheeses that are imported here, even salumi. By that, I mean cured meats like prosciutto di parma and, and uh, you know, genovese salame or soppressata. But there's a lot of things that you won't be able to use, like the natural um, vegetables. They have a different flavor than our, our vegetables. The fish will be different. The meat will be different. The lamb will be different because of where they're grown. So you can approximate very well what these recipes would taste like in Italy, but will they be exactly the same? No. It's funny because I think you've hit on the paradox of the of Italy, of the, the country and the culture, as far as being a country that is very adept and focused on precision, if you look at the racing mm-hmm. cars and some elements, and yet yeah. also very adept at making do and being creative and using right. what you have on hand. And, and it's so well represented by, by the food and, and its preparation. And you, you, exactly you mentioned right. everything I want to talk about. So I want to talk about geography, <laughs> and I want to talk about olive oil. Um, maybe okay. we'll start with the, the key element or the most striking element that you see as different in the Italians' relationship to food um, than in America. And it was funny because I had to keep reminding myself when we spoke, she's not going to have an Italian accent. She's not going to have an Italian accent. <laughs> Because reading the book and and looking at the photos, I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's just Italy, Italy, Italy. And I I, I was thinking you're a translator of sorts. You're making, as you just said, your goal was you are making and have made the Italian experience possible just for Mm -hmm. a bit for Americans. Yes, yes. Well, uh, the difference between, uh, I, I always say that when I'm in Italy, I... I'm exposed to reverence. I guess that's the word. I'm exposed to reverence of food. I'll give you a perfect example, and there's a story about this in um, my book. Um, so I took a group of people to Italy, as I do every year, to cooking school. And they cook with me and use the indigenous ingredients. And two years ago, I took a group to Sicily, where half of my family is from. 
and we wound up on a farm where they where they make um, uh, pecorino cheese. And a byproduct of pecorino cheese is ricotta cheese, because ricotta is a word that means to recook. So after they make pecorino cheese, sheep's milk cheese, they take the leftover whey and they add rennet to it and it coagulates um, the whey, and you wind up with a byproduct, which is ricotta cheese. So one of the dream desserts, the queen of all Sicilian desserts, of course, is cannoli. And I own my grandmother's old bamboo cannoli shells, uh, uh, cannoli forms, rather, to make the shells. So they're bamboo wood. So we're on the farm, and we're sampling the different pecorino cheeses, you know, the various stages of aging of the cheeses. And as we're about to just finish up that sampling of cheeses, the cheesemaker came over to me, and he says, wait, he says, we, we have one more thing for you to try. And I, I thought, well, it's got to be cannoli, because that was the only thing. <laughs> it's got to be cannoli. And sure enough, it was cannoli. Well, these cannoli were, I, I have them now as wallpaper, the picture. I have them as wallpaper on my computer, because they blew me away. These were the most ethereal-looking cannoli I have ever seen. First of all, the shells were very long, and blistered, golden brown, flaky, thin as a dime. And inside was this luscious, creamy ricotta cheese that was flavored with a little bit of lemon, chocolate, and orange citron. And when you took a bite of it, it did exactly what an authentic cannolo should do. It shattered, the shell shattered right down the front of you, so you had to have a napkin handy. And that was the most perfect cannoli I had ever eaten. And I've eaten many of them, and I've made many of them. And I finally said to myself, I have to go into the back room of this farm and ask the woman who made these how her cannoli shells are different from mine. So I traipsed back there. And I found her in the kitchen, and I was speaking to her in Italian, and I, I asked her, I said, tell us how you made the cannoli shells. Did you use flour? Yes. Double zero? Yes. Did you use lard? Yes. Did you use uh, marsala wine? Yes. Did you use a little salt? Yes. Did you use sugar? Yes, two tablespoons. Basta. That's it, right? Yes. And I said, that's how I make my shells, too. But yours are so much more delicate. They're better tasting. And I had to remind myself, of course they are. That's because I'm here in Sicily. I'm not home where the flour will be different. The lard may be butter instead of lard. You see where I'm going with this? I I do, I do. The cheese is different. You know, I can't get sheep's milk ricotta cheese at home unless I, you know, milked my own sheep and made cheese. The terroir, the land that gave up that milk to make the cheese is different. We can't duplicate it. And so those cannoli were forever embedded in my mind and on my taste buds. I will never be able to duplicate them, but I, will be, I can come close. And you can appreciate them when you have them. I was in San Francisco recently, and I was thinking, you know, the bread here is so different. I I wanted to buy every single thing on the counter at the farmer's market that was pastry because I thought it won't be the same at home. And then I saw some old burrata in my refrigerator yesterday. I had to throw it out because (laughs) after reading your book, I'm like, no, I have to eat it the same day it's made. (laughs) It's not right. That's right. You know, but see, I mean, that's the point, though. I I think I've been trying to make all these years on TV is that, you know, you you can come very close to doing something that's authentic uh, using the traditional methods, but you'll never really be able to to duplicate it. And so, um, these experiences of being in Italy allow me to have that extra tool, that extra emotional tool to write these cookbooks so that they're approachable to people, that people can try these recipes in their kitchen, and they're not hard. And they can come away with something that they can say, yes, this is a good facsimile of uh, what I might experience if I was in Italy. 
You say in the American kitchen, the role of olive oil is misunderstood. So I want to talk about how it's misunderstood. I also realize we misunderstand sauces, and we'll get to that later. Um, but, okay. but what did you mean is the role of olive oil is misunderstood? Well, I think the misconception is people don't know how to buy olive oil, and they don't, they don't know what the designations mean. For instance, you know, we use that expression, EZOO, which stands for extra virgin olive oil. Well, do you know what extra virgin olive oil means as opposed to what is just olive oil, uh, to keep it simple, or flavored olive oil, if, if you want? But first of all, in Italy, people do cook with extra virgin olive oil. Do they cook with extra virgin olive oil for everything? No. They will use it for light sautéing. They will use it as a drizzle, of course, on top of cooked meats, vegetables, grilled vegetables. They'll use it as, in, their, in their salad dressing. Will they deep fry with it? No, not really, because it's too heavy. But it's important to know what extra virgin olive oil is. And, and what it is by Italian law is that olive oil has to come from the very first pressing of the olives. And when olives are pressed, they're pressed with the pit. The whole thing is pressed, and it's cold pressed. So no artificial heat was used to extract the oil because heat sometimes can damage the flavor of oil. That's why you often see olive oil, or you always should see extra virgin olive oil sold in a dark bottle. It's in a dark bottle for a reason. And the reason is you want to keep out light, which is an enemy of olive oil, and you want to keep it away from heat. So, you know, you keep olive oil in a cool, dark place like a pantry or a cupboard, but not above your stove. So it has to be cold pressed from whole olives, and it has to have less than 1% acidity that's mandated by Italian law. That is what defines extra virgin olive oil. But does that mean that every extra virgin olive oil tastes the same? Absolutely not, because going back to what we said about food coming from specific areas, there are hundreds of varieties of olives grown in most of the 20 regions of Italy. For further north, far, far north, no, because olives do not like uh, cold weather. They like chalky. Uh, types of soil. So depending on where you are, let's say that you're in Tuscany and you buy an olive oil, an extra virgin olive oil there, that olive oil is going to taste much different than let's say an olive oil coming from Sicily because the olives are different. But the process of producing the oil has to be the same. Whole olives, pressed, pits and all, cold pressed, less than 1% acidity. Here's where the problem comes in for most people. They'll go to the store and they'll see olive oil for, let's say, $5. Now, right away, that should tell you that's not extra virgin olive oil. First of all, it should say extra virgin olive oil on the bottle. Second, if it's cheap, you've got to know that it's, it's got to be you know, a blend of something. What I advise people to do is buy a good olive oil, do an olive oil taste testing by buying two or three bottles that come from different regions. And I can just hear your, your uh, you know, listeners now saying, oh, yeah, right, that's going to cost me a bundle. But if you, if you try one or two or three from different regions, let's say you got one from Tuscany, you got one from Puglia, uh, you got one from Sicily, you would be able to tell, well, I like this one because it has a, a nice peppery aftertaste. I don't like that one because it is too peppery. I like something that has a lighter flavor. This is like, you know, doing a, a, a wine tasting. Eventually, after you've tasted a bunch of different wines, reds or white, you know what you like. So you buy olive oil that you like, but you must look on the bottle, on the back of the bottle, to see that it is a product of Italy. Is it produced in Italy? If it says produced in Italy, that, again, is not a sure thing. A few years ago, an article came out, and I can't remember if it was the New York Times or what newspaper it was, that dealt with this dilemma. And here's the problem. You can buy an olive oil that says product of Italy that may not very well be that. But why does it say this? Well, because the olives could be coming from different 
parts of the world. Let's say they're coming from Turkey, they're coming from Greece, they're coming from, you know, someplace else. Or from Spain, and, and I know that it tastes different from Spain, because I remember getting an olive oil okay. from Spain, and I thought, oh, I don't I don't care for this. And so it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not just how it's made, it's where the olives came from, and again, how important region is. Right. So if you have a mix of these different countries bringing olives to Italy and to a boat that is a refinery sitting in Italian waters, you can say this is a product of Italy because these olives coming from all these different countries were processed on an Italian boat, of a refinery, if you will, in Mediterranean, in Italian Mediterranean waters. That's how you can get around this. And maybe that's your favorite olive oil in the world, which is okay too, and right? Maybe. Like it's like I'm trying to think of the red wine yeah. where they do, they bring grapes from all over right. and then right. create something. And you might like that flavor, but that that's what matters, you know, that you take charge and say, oh, you can't just say, oh, I like it or I don't having tasted one. Um, right. That they're really different. And I, I love really that you talk about the the rules and not just rules, but laws, because there are laws around olive oil. There are laws around cheese. There are laws around ham. And um, you talk about in the book when you taste a piece of Parmigiano Reggiano and and the rules and nuances of the cheese and how it's made, the region it comes from. And beyond that, too, the the connection to the people and the earth and the places and its history. And I think that's something that may be, and we talk about the difference with American food for many Americans, is with that lacking, you lack that sense of sort of grounding and safety that I think many Americans are, are missing in daily life, um, that for Italians and for people connected with Italian food, um, the preparing of it and the eating of it, that it provides that as well. That's something that food has historically provided for people may be missing in a lot of our diets. I, th- I think that's so true. I think you just you just you know rounded up a, you know a whole summary of what this book is about. And and I, I circle back to the question you originally asked me about what is the difference between how we perceive food and how Italians perceive food. And again, it goes back to that word reverence. They they know where their food comes from. They they're very particular about how their food is grown, how, how they plant food. I told you a story in the book about going to a radicchio farm. I don't know if you read it, but a radicchio is grown in the Veneto in northern Italy. And so one day when I had this cooking group, I told them that we were going to go to a radicchio farm. But they had to be up early, like 7 o'clock in the morning. Everybody was complaining that they had to get up to watch lettuce grow. So, uh, But when they got to the radicchio farm, their attitude changed because here were these two guys, two young guys, 30 and 31 years old, so enthusiastic about the fact that they could grow radicchio di Treviso, these beautiful, elongated, purple um, lettuces with veining of white stripes all over. And they were just, they were beside themselves about how this grew in their fields. And their mother made not only salad with this, but she made marmalades with this. You could grill it. You could make a grilled radicchio salad. Everybody that worked in the facility was part of the family. They had such pride in what they were doing. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking pride and mastery and bounty. Yes. And purpose. Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, to give you another example, um, when we were in Sicily, of course, you know, I told people, think about where you are geographically. So what do you think that the, the, um, the diet would be based on? What, what, what do you really think it would be based on? Well, you know, it's an island, so let's think fish, right? Lots of fish. And I felt that a lot of them were just stunned by that. They thought, you know, they were going to eat the things that they were familiar with at home. So we went for a beautiful fish dinner. And, of course, if you ordered a, a grilled fish, um, you got the whole thing, you know? And this is something you never see in the States. You don't go to the store, do you, and buy uh, cod with the head and tail on. No, you just buy the fillet. That's all you ever see. So we have a society of children growing up who really don't know what, what food really looks like. They think everything comes in plastic, right? 
you've got chicken legs in plastic, you've got you know, fish fillets in plastic. And in Italy, you get to see <laughs> what food is all about. You, you, you get the whole thing. So they were just, they couldn't order a whole fish um, to come on their plate because they couldn't bear to look at uh, the eyes of the fish or just knowing that it was a whole fish. And I think that's part of the difference, too. Is that um, yeah? That that's we have, unappealing we have instead of uh, instead of wondrous. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you know, they, and comforting the, and comforting. Comforting fish. They, they, they missed the whole drama. Fish is a fish. You know, they missed the whole drama. Yeah, of it. the connection to, to uh, nature. So, so I you, recall. Oh, go ahead. I recall when I was in Tuscany, we were doing rabbit in a class because rabbit's very common there. And so I had ordered rabbit for the the morning class. Well, I never envisioned myself that the butcher would be bringing the rabbits, all, you know, still with the fur on, to the class. I mean, that, if you want a fresh rabbit, that's what you're going to get fresh. Now, people, they were just, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't deal with that, of course. So, you know, we had to go into the back room and, you know, work with the with do, the guy your magic the, back. Create the magic. <laughs> Get palatable. Without them seeing that, so that they could just see, you know. And even at that, you know, they weren't going to eat thumper, so. Yeah. No names. Well, and, you know, you mentioned reverence, and there's reverence there. There's reverence that's gained from that. And yeah. um, you, I think, have a special reverence for Anaposto. I noticed throughout the book, I was like, <laughs> okay, Miriam's got a special relationship um, with Anaposto. Is that something that you are aware of having? No, I do. I have a special relationship. You, you to do the way that you talk about it. I think, and maybe because it it exemplifies oh. so many elements of of Italian oh, yeah. eating that that you love. Yeah. You know the I, the, yeah. the way it's laid out and the the different elements oh, and how yes. they all come together. And and so I want to talk yeah. about that about because time is a is a real I think element in That's Italian it. cooking yeah. and American cooking American cooking and. You have a recipe for olives, and you say to you have to love them because making them takes time. Yeah, and cooking in in general takes time. And you mentioned that again. You know, even as a child, you recognize why aren't my my grandmothers and mother just going to the store and buying instead of um, you know soup making be an all day affair. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But but yes. I thought it makes for a richer soup and a richer life. So yes. Uh, when I talked about antipasto, you know, I said, you know, in Italy, no one ever hurries at the table. Nobody, nobody's in a rush. Nobody's got their cell phone. You know, they're they're watching TV or they're you know talking on the phone. They're they're focused on the food. And antipasti, I wanted the book to be like a a progression of how Italians eat. So you start with antipasti, and then you've got the first course, second course, salad course, you know, and dessert. So antipasto, of course, is a word that means it goes before the meal, before. So it's kind of like wetting your appetite for what's going to come next. And so antipasti in Italy, are they're very healthy things. You know, they could be, they could be very uh, simply a plate of cured meats, uh, like prosciutto di parma. They could be grilled vegetables, like um, grilled zucchini. They, it could be grilled eggplant. It could be grilled. Uh, it could be little chipolina onions in an agrodolce sauce, like a sweet and sour sauce. Um, it could be artichoke hearts. It could be any of those things, and they're eaten in small portions. This is why I put the the map, the um, picture rather, the chart of the Mediterranean diet in the book. If you notice, it's on the inside back cover, and also there's a picture of it, the Mediterranean diet pyramid somewhere in the middle of the book because I wanted people to realize that Italians have a very healthy lifestyle because if you look at the base of the pyramid, it's loaded with those things that we should eat, a lot of vegetables, fruits, and grains. Whereas if you go up as the pyramid narrows to the top, you'll see that, you know, meats are up there and, and sweets and, and things that we should have occasionally and not um, a- every day. So antipasti is usually this, is usually grilled vegetables or it's a little bit of salumi eaten in small portions. This is why I, I get kind of a, a little maybe, you know, upset when people think, oh my God, you can't eat Italian food, it's fattening. 
it's what Americans have done to, it's what we've done to Italian food that gives it that perception. Because when you're in Italy, of course, you know, I mean, you're walking around, you're seeing 90-year-olds, you're seeing people trudging up steep hills with grocery bags or riding bicycles, you know, they're, they're into their years. And you and they're not you know they're not big people and you have to say to yourself they're getting exercise they're eating the right things and they're eating in the right proportions that's the Mediterranean diet and that's why the Italian diet is really one to emulate and I recall when I was in Parma I interviewed the president of the Barilla Pasta Company and Barilla is a brand that you can find in, in most grocery stores uh, in the U S. Uh, so I, I, uh, had a meeting with him in his office and I said to him, I said, how many times a week do you eat pasta? You know what his answer was? He eats it twice a day, lunch and dinner. And this guy was as thin as a pencil, but he said, it's the, the amount of pasta that we eat and the, the amount of salt that we top it with that is critical. So, you know, a cup of cooked pasta is not a lot of pasta, but it's a serving. So a pasta can easily serve eight people. But in the States, you know, we have taken that and we've kind of reorganized, if you will, how we should eat pasta. So now you eat a platter full and you down it in sauce that you can't find the pasta because you've got so much sauce and cheese over the top of it, and you've added all kinds of ingredients that maybe shouldn't be there in the first place. And and you eat it as your main course. And you eat it as your main course instead of a first course. And you gobble it down really quickly. And you gobble it down in in Italian, there's a word, uh, piano, that's slow. Piano, piano, yes. At the table. And I was thinking just now about the difference between the antipasto in Italy and then the amuse-bouche in in France. And I thought it's so telling of the cultures, you know, the amuse-bouche is this teeny little thing. It's perfectly, perfectly crafted um, and beautiful. But, you know, you pop it in quickly and then you're done and you move on. Whereas the antipasto, you know, you gather, uh, you taste, you try, you've got the Mm -hmm. crusty bread um, that you can count on um, regardless of what else is there. But they don't serve the crusty bread with olive oil and balsamic vinegar. <laughs> right. And, and everyone has to get the book just so they can read about the balsamic vinegar. I thought that was the most enlightening, enlightening aspects. That and, and we'll talk a little bit about sauce and, and the tomato paste, because I thought that was so um, interesting mm-hmm. as well. The making the tomato paste and, and the learning process mm-hmm. and the steps that you must follow and the care and attention that you have to put toward it. Yes. Well, in general, uh, you know, tomatoes, that's, that's kind of, uh, Italian tomatoes is one of those the foods that also is misunderstood, like olive oil, because people, you know, most people say, well, I make sauce with plum tomatoes. That's fine. It's, that's right. You know, you make sauce with plum tomatoes. But plum tomatoes and San Marzano plum tomatoes are two different things. And people have heard that, that name, San Marzano. And again, there's a lot of mislabeling about this because you'll go to the grocery store and it'll say San Marzano tomatoes, right? I'm sure you've seen this, San Marzano tomatoes. Well, they're not San Marzano tomatoes unless they say San Marzano D-O-P. And in the book, I explain what D-O-P means, which in Italian means denominazione origine protetta. In other words, those tomatoes called San Marzano, have to come from a place in Italy called San Marzano. And they are grown in a certain way. They're cultivated. They're canned. They're canned whole, never chopped. And they have that um, appellation DOP because, again, they have followed certain rules to be known as the San Marzano. And San Marzano tomatoes are perfect for making tomato sauces because they're very meaty, they're low acid, they have not a lot of seeds, and they have a little sweeter taste. So a San Marzano DOP can of plum tomatoes is not the same thing as San Marzano plum tomatoes. 
And you'll notice that if you buy the DOP, and it has to say DOP right on the can, you'll also see the little yellow uh, seal of the European Union. That's how you know you're getting the authentic thing that came from San Marzano. And to make this point even more um, relevant, when I was in Italy one year, we filmed, we went to San Marzano to see how these tomatoes are canned. And we went to a, a canning factory that was in Striano. I talk about Striano in the book. And Striano is a plant where um, you have this mechanized system of a lot of women who come in for the season standing at these long belts, you know, checking the t- tomatoes as they come down the belts, they're washed, they remove the ones that are bruised, that are not perfect for canning, and then this mechanized process goes on where the peels, the skin is taking off the tomatoes, but the tomatoes are left whole, then they are put into these cans and they are processed, they're labeled, and they are sent out, you know, for export outside the country and, co- of course, within Europe. So if you want to make tomato sauce, I would say try to find San Marzano DOP. If you can't, it's perfectly fine to use plum tomatoes. You're just, you're just not going to have the same, you know, the same result. And yet in Italy, you better be a little more careful because it's dictated yep. by law which tomatoes can be used exactly. for different exactly. things. And also I tell people, you know, tomatoes in general, you have to realize, have a specific cooking purpose. For instance, a beefsteak tomato. One, I remember once getting an email from a woman who made sauce out of beefsteak tomatoes, and oh. it was all watery. Well, of course it was, because the beefsteak tomato is a tomato that's a salad tomato. This, this is not something that you would want to use to make a sauce, because it is watery, it has a lot of seeds, and it's not pulpy enough. It's not like... Uh, a San Marzano. So you use the right tomato to make the right sauce. And in the book, I tell you uh, how to do this, how to make a, a classic, for instance, Neapolitan tomato sauce. Um, and then there are the cherry tomatoes, the pomodorini, as they're called, the little tomatoes, the little pomodorini. And these tomatoes, again, are used for um, salads, or they're often dried. So they, they string them up they string them up, they hang them up, and they dry them so that the flavor, the sugar, is concentrated in the tomato. And then they can use them, you know, in the colder uh, months uh, of the year for cooking. And then there is the making of tomato paste. That's a whole different thing. So to make tomato paste, and I'm not advocating people make tomato paste because that, that is quite laborious, but I do give you a recipe on how to make um, something called a strato, which is a dried tomato that you can grind. First, you have to dry the tomatoes and then grind the tomatoes um, that can give you a paste that's very good to use. Um, well, and you, you also describe your experience um, watching and participating in potato, uh, potato, tomato paste being made. And I think yeah. that tells so much um, to the reader and must have to you as well about the dedication to the process and the purposefulness mm-hmm. and the stages of creation. And another area where that is so relevant is the ham. You say the ham that wears the crown. And and that's something yeah. if you visit Italy, you'll go even into a ready mart mm-hmm. at the gas station yeah. and there are oh, hams sure. hanging. There it is. <laughs> um, and special, special hams. And I think we just have to talk a minute about... Okay. Um, actually that these hams are good for you. Uh, again, Absolutely. I think there's a misnomer in America, you know, that ham is a bad food. Yeah. Well, this ham, you know, it, we're talking prosciutto di Parma, the ham that wears the crown. And so, yes, this ham is good for you. And it, the reason, Ellie, it's good for you is because there's, there's only one ingredient that, that's needed to cure it, and that's salt. That's it. Salt and time, the time that it takes for this uh, ham to cure, which is unlike, you know, a lot of the processed foods, hams that we get, have all kinds of things in there that, you know, you, you really don't want to eat. So prosciutto di parma is really a very healthy food, and as you know, it's sliced so paper thin that, um, you know, it's it's very, you know, it it's doesn't have a lot of calories, and it's it's not fatty. 
So if you're going to eat, an, uh, eat a ham, I would say eat prosciutto di Parma, which, of course, it gets that name because Parma is the, uh, one of the areas where these hams can be produced in the, in the region of Emilia-Romagna. And prosciutto comes from the word to dry out, prosciugare, to dry, to dry out. So the ham, they dry out because they've been salted and hung in kind of airy uh, rooms, attics, where the, the moisture content of the room is just right for the drying of the hams. And they cure until um, the prosciutto uh, maker comes with a, a very um, thin bone. It's actually a femur bone of a, a horse. He takes this thin bone and he he inserts it. (laughs) Had to read that three times. Yeah, inserts it into the thickest part of the ham and he pulls it out and he smells it. And he knows, you know, instantly if it's a good ham or or it's a bad ham just by by smelling it. But see, these are artisan makers. This is what I'm I'm going back to that word reverence again. These, These people, you know, they're making these hams. These are from from tradition, you know, these hands have been made for hundreds of years, and they're carrying on that tradition, and they're keeping the product as um, true to its natural state as possible. So no, you know, added this or added that. And so then it is the most nutritious, and I think too, you know, the old adage: you get you get out of what you put into it, and there's certainly. Um, evidence of that again and again with the production of food. And I also love the the contradictions because it wouldn't be Italy without it. Um, the idea that so many of the sweets come from Sicily, which I always felt like was sort of more the hard, sort of brutal, <laughs> more brutal <laughs> a, a, a area of, of Italy. And yet all these sweets, and I love that they say, well, we, we just use them for celebration, you know, for the big events. And then it, you're like, oh, yeah. really? Because I think, <laughs> I, think yeah. I saw the guy eating a big old grate, you know, something or other with his perfectly made of espresso at the counter at, 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 yeah. every, at every break. Yeah. I, I want to talk in our last few minutes about, and it's, it's a, a, a bit of a leap, but um, women and, and the, the shift in women's role in mm-hmm. Italy and America. And, um, you know, Italy's changed a lot. Of, you, you said that Italy's changed you over the last 20 years, and, oh, and yes. Italy <laughs> has changed. Yes. And um, in, in one aspect that has to have changed would be, mm-hmm. and again, we're back to the time and the women's role. Um, yeah. You said still most of the professional chefs in Italy are, are men, but it was the women mm-hmm. who traditionally, historically, um, and even though Italy is a newer country, the, the food, the history of the food goes back um, as long as we can remember, that it was women who were making most of the food. Um, and I'm wondering how that you've seen that shift. Well, I, I've seen that shift because I've seen as the older women in Italy are passing on, the nonas, the grandmothers, and the zia, the, the aunts, the younger generation of women are not at home. They're in the workforce because, you know, Italy, like this country, you know, it's, it's hard to make ends meet. And, and you have the, the, you have in a, a family, both partners are working. So there isn't a lot of time for cooking. So the art, let's say, of making pasta for the younger generation of women is, is not there. I mean, I have met young women in Italy who, who don't know how to make pasta. They, they don't know how to make gnocchi. Um, you know, they, they don't know how to make some of the filled pastas like, oh, the, um, the tortellini, the tortelli rather, um, or the ravioli. They, they just don't know how to do it because once, once these older women who knew this craft, this art, died, that died with them. And, and that's why I feel good about Ciao Italia, the, the uh, television show, because I'm trying to keep that, those traditions alive, you know, for posterity. You can watch us make these things. You can, you can see how, um, you know, tortelli di zucca, for instance, are, are made. Well, what is tortelli di zucca, you know? And then if you watch our show, you find out this is a pumpkin-filled, um, you know, type of ravioli that comes from uh, Emilia-Romagna. It has, an, it has Parmigiano cheese and amaretti cookie crumbs in it and stuff, stuff like that. So you get to know, you get to uh, see that, that this tradition can live on um, 
on social media or on, on you know, So you've, on merged, you've merged the two worlds so that yes, we can all know that, that the Capelletti, that the Capelletti dough needs to be softer and wetter. Than exactly. That's, it, that's so true. Um, so I, I feel like, you know, at least we've done a service for, for people who want to know a little bit about, a little bit more about what Italian regional food is all about. They can, they can tune into Ciao Italia. They can read Ciao Italia, my lifelong food adventures in Italy, my latest book, and they can they can come to somewhat of an understanding uh, of that. And I I don't want your your um, listeners to think that the recipes in this book there's over 150 of them are difficult. They're not difficult. No, and, and I have specific books that are just geared towards showing that this can be quick and simple, simple meals. Yes. And yes. The, the thing that worries me, and now more than ever that we had our conversation, is losing that element of the other aspects of connection with food. And I was thinking about your fig and zucchini bread, and I thought, oh, that sounds like an old <laughs> friend for you. And, I just and made then, that this morning. Oh, yay! <laughs> and then I was thinking about your grandmother's elaborate dishes honoring St. Joseph, and, and yes. she felt that and I believe that this may have contributed, in, you know, in, in saving your grandfather's life and and yes. the no, Neapolitan stuffed Easter bread. Um, mm-hmm. That the not fanfare, but the the purposefulness and the presentation yes. and the care. Yes. Um, I and I, the symbolism and the, the symbolism. symbolism. That was the word I was looking for. The symbolism. Yeah. Um, do you feel that that? Do you worry that 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 is getting lost or or may get lost? I I do worry that that it will get lost because I you know in our own country I see the same parallel of what's happening in Italy happening here where people aren't around the table they don't have time to spend you know eating a leisurely meal and talking to each other about what they did that day or what their problems were like the Italians do because we have schedules i mean you know you got to be here you got to be there you've got kids that are going to soccer so so the, the the focus of eating a meal together is being lost i think it, it in my estimation is being lost and so you know women feel stressed and and so they they may not be able to have time to cook, and so if they don't cook, they don't pass that on to their own children, right? Yeah, our countries, so, our children, and our our country as a whole, I think, is is extremely stressed right. these days. And I think yeah. this it may seem to some trivial the the act of cooking or the act of eating, but I think it, it couldn't be more important. So, so I have one last question before we have to go and your grandmother is one of your grandmothers is from Naples and she as you mentioned earlier I think owned a boarding house and she owned a boarding yeah. house with the only bathtub in the neighborhood and right. she went on Friday nights charged 25 cents for a warm bath and and I'm sure mm-hmm. an incredibly amazing meal right um, 25 cents and I'm wondering if you feel um because I do, but I'm wondering if you feel like you've provided the same warmth and nourishment with your with your cooking and your cooking show and in your books. Well, I'd, I'd like to think that you know that's true. That uh, because I do love I do love sharing knowledge with people, um, and I I like to be generous um, as they were generous, and I I just invite people into my television kitchen and through my books to to. You know, enjoy Italy with me um, to come to the table with me through the cookbook so that you can get into the kitchen, open up to a recipe, and make something that, you know, is is delicious, easy to do, and really has a history and a purpose. And I think if people do that, I, they will find a, that they want to have a better connection with food, that they want to pass things on. Uh, in their own families, to their own children. Because I, cooking is something that everyone should be able to do, don't you think? I do, and I think as you're speaking, I'm saying, and, you know, they also have a connection with, with history and with another country and with their family because they've sat down and, and eaten it together and that they have done all the things that make humanity and a life fulfilling is is they've created something and they've done it purposefully and they've done it well and, and they've been... Um, artistic and also, uh, you know, have nourished the people around them. And then they can take a picture of it and put it on Instagram and and have that 
that, you know, connection too with the modern world of, of a sense of pride. And, yeah, and it, it, that's so true. And you can and you see how in our own country we've have we now have an explosion of food bloggers mm-hmm. all talking about food, right? As you when you just mentioned Instagram taking a picture and posting it. Well, you know, just somewhere along the way, I think people are getting the message that hey, food is a great thing to talk about, right? And it matters. It matters to all elements, right? Physical, spiritual, emotional. Well, thank you so much for joining us on That Got Me Thinking. And maybe I know, has the book, um, is it out yet or it's out soon? Maybe you could let people know where they can get it. The book uh, will be released on November 1st, but they can get it now on Amazon. They can go to pathwaybook.com and order it there. They can order it on chowitalia.com. Um, and I hope that um, whoever picks it up will enjoy reading it and, and traveling with me through the pages to Italy. And I appreciate your time, and um, I oh, hope you too was, will just page wonderful. through the book and, oh. and make some of those oh, things. Oh, no, Try we're, we're going to get cooking, and then I'm going to post it on Instagram and <laughs> show you what we've made. That would be wonderful, Ellie. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Ciao. Right. Bye, Marianne. Bye. Bye.